The Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host, Sarah Morris. Hello, it's Sarah, the Tudor Travel Guide here. Welcome to this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. This is just a note to say that if you are hearing this, then you are not currently part of my membership programme and will only be hearing the first part of each show. In order to access full episodes of the Tudor History and Travel Show, you will need to become a member of my membership site, the ultimate guide to exploring Tudor England via the link in the description associated with this podcast. Doors to the membership open roughly every six to eight weeks. So if you want to become a member, you can add your name to the waiting list right now. The link to do so is in the description associated with this podcast and I will be in touch with further information just as soon as doors reopen. Now, you've probably heard me say it before, but May is one of my favourite months. I think it is one of the best times to be travelling here to the UK to explore our heritage. And maybe some of you out there are getting ready to pack your bags right now and head this way. Because, of course, May is also a big month on the Tudor calendar with the anniversary of the execution of Anne Boleyn on the 19th of May. And of course, this year, there is another event to look forward to. Yes, of course, we have the coronation of Charles III taking place on the 6th of May. Now, while many people are perhaps less than enthusiastic about the monarch themselves, there is a huge amount of curiosity about seeing this historical spectacle which has remained unchanged for literally nearly a thousand years. In fact, on that note, my friend, I ran a very successful coronation summit just a couple of weeks ago. But because there are so many questions coming my way about the event, the history, the ceremony, what to look out for, I thought that I would reopen access to the coronation summit. So, If you missed my Coronation Summit, which is the Your Essential Guide to Coronation, Unraveling the Mystique of Monarchy, if you missed it the first time, then worry not because you get a second bite of the cherry, my friends. Yes, right now you can grab your ticket and get access straight away to the four principal speakers We have Tracy Borman talking about the history of the ceremony itself. We have Jonathan Foyle talking about the buildings of coronation, notably Westminster Abbey and Westminster Hall. We have Nicola Tallis talking about the regalia of coronation or the bling. (laughs) And then we have O'Leary Lynn and Anne Butcher talking to us about the robes of coronation. 
And then finally, we have a wonderful creative endeavor by three wonderful, fantastic ladies, uh, Ashley Risk, Natalia Richards and Rebecca Monet, who've put together a world premiere for us for this summit, which is a creative illustrated account of Anne Boleyn's coronation procession going from Greenwich Palace via the Tower all the way to the doors of Westminster Abbey. It is really sensational. I've had some great feedback about the summit, people saying that they've learned so much and now feel coronation ready for the event. So if you want to grab your ticket, I will be keeping booking open up until the coronation and for a few days thereafter, but no longer, my friends. So don't miss out. You can grab your ticket now. There will be a link in the description associated with this podcast if you want to find out more about what you will find in the summit and, of course, to get your ticket. Well, that's our first piece of housekeeping. For the second, I promised that in this episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show, I would talk more about my brand new membership, which is called The Ultimate Guide to Exploring Tudor England. Yes, my friends, this is my passion, my long-term project in which I pull together all the very best of my content, written, audio, and of course, visual, and create a rich and diverse source of information for Tudor lovers everywhere. Now, being the Tudor travel guide, of course, the focus of TUG, as I call it for short, is, of course, on Tudor places and retelling the stories of Tudor history, the people and the events through the places in which they happened. At the heart of TUG are its itineraries. These are itineraries both by person, and in fact, these are write-ups, detailed write-ups of Tudor progresses, We already have the 1486 Progress of Henry VII available for members to read and the 1502 Progress is currently being researched and added to the content library. If you're a little more than an armchair time traveller and you're actually planning a trip here to the UK, you will also enjoy my itineraries by county. So you will get inspiration on where to visit depending on the part of the country that you're visiting as well as itineraries by the amount of time that you might have available. By popular request, there are lots of interactive maps. These show places across the UK, so if UK geography is not your thing, but you're wanting to plan your own adventure, these maps are invaluable. There's also a growing catalogue of Tudor tombs. (laughs) Yes, if you follow me on Instagram, you will know I have a Thing about Tudor tombs and I do enjoy charting them along the way. If you're planning a trip to the UK, you may also enjoy my growing library of historic accommodation. So yes, if you want to add the icing on your cake of your trip by staying at somewhere medieval or Tudor, then you will find a growing list of write-ups of some of the best places that I have encountered along my travels. Then there's the live action. You can catch me in dialogue with curators, historians, authors on a monthly basis on my live Tudor talk. And twice a year, I'm also going to be running travel masterclasses for people again planning a trip to the UK who want very specific and detailed information along a particular theme. 
So last year we did one on Tudor London Made Easy and the next one that's coming up at the end of May will be Great Tudor Days Out from London. There's access to all my previous virtual summits on demand and depending upon the level of membership, you will also have access to my current summit free of charge and many people have taken advantage of that as well as my most detailed videos that I am recording to accompany the write-ups of the progresses contained within the membership. We also, of course, have this podcast. So previously, you were able to access full-length versions of this podcast if you are a member of my patron. Now, so many people wanted me to centralise all my content under one roof, and that is what Tug does. And so now, if you want to listen to the full-length episodes of my podcast, you can do so by becoming a member at either level, armchair traveller or road trip traveller level. And last but certainly not least, there is a community board. This is where like-minded Tudor history lovers come together to share their passion of visiting and learning about Tudor places and really just Tudor history in general. I think it's a great place in which to make new friends who share your interest or in fact I'm hoping in time it would also be a great place to find a travel buddy because I do get people asking me oh do you know anybody who lives da 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 so well it would be lovely to link people up and think of new friendships taking root so I'm out of breath I don't know about you but there is a lot in the membership and as I mentioned at the top of the podcast this really is my passion and this is something that I am giving myself to over the next decade or so where we start today and there's an awful lot in there already certainly will not be where we end up and I'd love to have you along with me on the journey. So as ever, I will include a link in the description associated with this podcast if you are interested in finding out more and also looking at which level of membership might be right for you. And for those of you already out there who are already members of TUG, I just want to say a massive thank you for coming on board from the beginning. Many of you are founder members and helped me test out the site and I am deeply grateful and I just love the community that we are building. So my friends, maybe I'll see you there. Okay, well, with all that housekeeping done, we are ready to get on with the meat of today's show. And yes, I am whisking you off to the ancient city of Winchester in Hampshire, which is down towards the south coast of England, if you're not entirely familiar with the geography. Now, Winchester is such a fascinating place because its history stretches way, way back. It is replete with Roman history, with Saxon history, and of course, with medieval and Tudor history. You can really spend a full weekend enjoying all its historic delights. But the centrepiece has to be, of course, its great medieval cathedral. And that is where we are going today. So let us not tarry any further It's time to meet our expert guide and to hear all about the Tudor tales associated with Winchester Cathedral. And yes, there 
are a couple of very important Tudor events linked to it. So, my friends, I give you Winchester Cathedral and our guide, Aisha El Sadi. Well, welcome, dear listeners. You find me in the centre of the ancient city of Winchester, right outside its venerable cathedral. And as I said in the introduction, I wanted to come here because this city has a long and noble history, which reaches way back in time. And we're going to be exploring a little bit of that in a moment with our guide. But with regards to Tudor history, there are also a couple of really important events and visitors to Winchester that I wanted to highlight in this podcast. We have the visit of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn in 1535 during their historic summer progress. And then, of course, we have the marriage of Mary I to Philip. And we're going to be going into some detail about each of those events and where they took place and standing in the very places that they unfolded. So, Buckle up because we're about to go on an adventure in time. And to do that, we need a guide. So I'm going to introduce Aisha. Hello, Aisha. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Sarah. So nice to see you today. It's a bit of a chilly day, chilly January day (laughs) um, that we're recording this, but thankfully no snow. No snow. And no snow. But maybe before we start our story, you could just uh, tell us who you are and what, what, what do you do here at the cathedral? So my name is Aisha Al-Sadi and I am the Learning and Heritage Officer here at the cathedral. So that is kind of, the <laughs> doesn't really describe exactly what I do. Um, but when we have school children who want to come and learn about the cathedral and the history of Winchester, as well as looking at art and science and all the faith that we can look at in the building, then that's what I do. So I design a day for them. Uh-huh. Um, and I also am essentially the assistant curator as well so I get to look and touch and look after all the amazing old objects that we have in the cathedral with our curator and librarian. Oh fantastic okay well I don't know whether we'll be looking to see (laughs) any of those today but we are going to be talking about the history as I said and going into the cathedral and standing in some of the really important places there. Before we dive into the Tudor history that Mm. I was mentioning earlier, I think it is worthwhile talking about the very ancient roots of Winchester because it was an incredibly important city and it's way back, way, 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 way back, even before the Norman invasion. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could start there. Tell us a little bit about the history of Winchester and how come it became so important. It's a very good question. Um, So... Essentially, we had an Iron Age fort here, um, populated by a group of Britons called the Belgae tribe. And then from then, we obviously, we had the Romans turning up in this part of of Britain, and they created an amazing uh, city here called Venta Belgarum. And where our current cathedral is at the moment, we think there was some sort of forum or some sort of important site here. Then the Romans left, and then we had the Anglo-Saxons and the Jutes turning up, collectively being known as the Anglo-Saxons. And then in the early 600s, we had our first minster built in Winchester. And that was really important because it would have looked completely different from every other building in Winchester because it was the first stone building to be built here since the Romans left. Wow. Um, and it would have been quite simple, quite a simple building um, but as I say it would have stood out from all the mottle and dorb houses that would have been surrounding it. Can I ask a question? Yeah. What is a minster as opposed to a cathedral? So a minster is basically a church is what a minster is um, and we had not only the 
Old Minster, which was the first one to be built in 16, uh, sorry, in 648. But we also had the New Minster, which was built in 901 AD. And that was a Benedictine abbey that became a, a royal mausoleum. So where the royal family of Winchester was buried. Thank you for saying that, because the royal connection is really important. Mm -hmm. I think perhaps people who don't know so much about English history might mistake the fact that London has always been England's capital, but of course it wasn't like that. And maybe you could explain why that was so and, and, and what was so important about Winchester. Yes, absolutely. So Winchester was never the capital city of England, but it was the capital city of the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Wessex. So if you think at the time, especially time of uh, King Alfred, which everybody's heard of, um, there were many different kingdoms in England. So it wasn't, England didn't exist as one country. It was lots and lots of different kingdoms. And Wessex was a very, very important kingdom. It's one of the largest ones. And it was the last one when we had the great heathen or the great summer army of Vikings taking over Anglo-Saxon England. Wessex was the last kingdom, which is where you get the program, The Last ah, Kingdom from uh, okay. Bernard Cornwall books. Um, so Wessex was the last kingdom before the Vikings came and eventually got that back they, they took it over from Alfred, but then Alfred won it back again. But Winchester was really important because it's where the royal mint was. We had a royal palace here as well. And it was huge, that it was, palace, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely stunning. And the old minster went from being quite a humble, simple minster to becoming a really extravagant one. Lots of extensions were put on, towers were put on to it. And then when you had the um, new minster, they competed with each other. Uh -huh. So they made themselves grander and grander. <laughs> um, and they would have been absolutely amazing buildings to yeah. see. Yeah, but those minsters no longer exist. We're standing in front of a later building. And so how did that happen? What happened to the old minsters and how come we have this magnificent building? And by the way, I should just say, dear listeners, as ever, there will be a show notes page associated with this podcast. We'll be taking lots of pictures. So if you want to refer to that show notes page, there'll be a link in the description associated with the podcast as ever. So you can look at the pictures and hear Aisha and I chat as we go. So yes, the question was, what happened to the old minsters and, and what is this building in front of us? So when the Norman Conquest happened in 1066 um, and William the Conqueror came to Winchester, he saw the amazing old and new minsters and obviously with a lot of the things that the Normans did, they wanted to put their stamp on it. They wanted to say, well, we're not, we're not scrubbing away the history because we want to say that we own that now, but equally we want to say that this is ours. So they knocked down the old minster and they built this great big whacking Norman cathedral on top of it. Well, just just to the um, north of it. And it's absolutely huge. It's, it's much, much bigger than the old or the new minster was. And a lot of the stone from the old minster was used in the construction of the Makes current of cathedral. Yeah. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. Can you give us any stats, any dimension, just to give people an idea, maybe, of how big the cathedral is? Um, it's very big. <laughs> <laughs> the children ask us that a lot. Um, 
I can't remember off the top of my head, but I know, I know that it's big. When it was when it was originally built, because it's had modifications done to the front of it, um, so we had um, some Gothic medieval style reconstruction to the nave and the front of the cathedral. So the cathedral actually would have been the nave of the cathedral would have been much longer uh-huh. when it was originally built, and we had the largest medieval nave in Europe. They, we, we still say that I think to some extent, but I don't know if that's really true. Um, of the UK anyway. Um, but certainly when it was built, it was one of the largest buildings to, to ever exist. And what's the date of this Norman cathedral? So we say 1078, uh, 1078, 1079. Um, and yeah, it's been here for nearly a thousand years yeah, now. Yeah, it always blows my mind. There's nothing like stepping into a building that's over a thousand years old to give you some goosebumps. So what we're going to do in a minute, I think, is is go inside. And I would just say to those folk listening that it is a normal opening day in the cathedral. There will be, pe- life will be going on. So as usual, you may hear some noises in the background, but hopefully that will just add to your sense of being here alongside us. Now, before we go inside the cathedral and start talking about the Tudor, couple of Tudor events that I mentioned at the top of the programme, I really wanted to ask you about the legend of St Swithin because many people who know anything about Winchester will know about St Swithin and the old 40 rainy days. Can you just clarify, who was St Swithin and what's in this legend? How did that come about? So St Swithin, he was originally an Anglo-Saxon bishop of the Old Minster, so he was Bishop Swithin, and he performed lots of miracles during his life. Um, you might have heard of the uh, the miracle of the lady with the basket of eggs on the Winchester Bridge, mm-hmm. where he helped her and made her eggs whole again so she was able to feed her family. Um, so there are lots and lots of legends and stories around about St Swithin when he was alive, and when he died and he became a saint, lots of people came on pilgrimage to Winchester to kneel at the tomb of St. Swithin and claimed to be healed. So all the walls of the old minster was covered in the crutches of people who had come to the shrine and been healed. Um, and eventually uh, he was moved from outside the cathedral because um, outside the old minster, he said, I don't want a grand tomb. I'm quite a humble man. I want people to be able to see me. But they decided, well, actually, he's bringing quite a lot of pilgrims. So we want to move them in so we can make some money out of it, oh, right. really. <laughs> um, so they moved him into the actual minster itself. And when they moved him in, they, you know, they had a special service. They, they did it all with a lot of pageantry and a special silver box was made to contain his bones. And it's said that when the men carrying the box, the requiry box, stepped over the threshold into the old minster, that it went from being a very sunny day to being a very dark day. And the ground was covered with ice and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights because they went against the wishes. He was not a happy man. He was not happy. (laughs) Right, okay. And hence hence so. And it's funny, actually, because um, I I was reading a little bit about that legend and it's something about it. What time of year is it? Is it July? Yes, July the 15th. There's there's actually some meteorological event around that time, I think, that means actually if it does rain, it it, it will rain for that length of time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. interesting. Anyway, I prefer the first version myself. It's got a little (laughs) bit more mystique to it, a bit more drama. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, why don't we go inside and we can perhaps talk about our first story, which is the 1535 visit of Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII and why they came here to Winchester and in particular to this cathedral. Fabulous. Let's go then. Let's go. Mm-hmm. 
well, we've come inside and I'm very glad for it. Cause my, I don't know about you, Aisha, but my fingers are like icicles. It's actually warmer in here, which I hardly ever is. <laughs> well, we are standing at the west end of the church, just inside the Great West Doors, looking down the nave. And wow, what a sight. Maybe you could just start by describing a little about what we're seeing and, 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 the, and kind of the architecture. What kind of architecture is it? So the immediate thing that you're struck by when you come into the west end of the cathedral is the grand scale of it and how high the ceiling is. So whenever I bring school children in here, everybody goes, wow, because it's just so beautiful. So we've got these lovely, slim, gothic columns going all the way up to a ribbed gothic um, ceiling. They're actually covering the really thick Norman columns that are inside them, but they look—they made them look really, really slender by putting these Gothic ones over the top of them. Mm. And when you look right up at the ceiling, you can see we've got all sorts of different roof bosses, so different symbols. We've also got different grotesques, little um, animal faces, little people faces, little sort of creatures sort of poking out of all the different parts of the architecture. Um, and we've got a lot of uplighting in the cathedral as yes. well. Oh, these beautiful lights. Lighting that, is everything, it I find. Really, it tr absolutely <laughs> transforms the space. Yeah. Um, and you notice so much about the architecture that you wouldn't have seen. Um, and especially at this time of the year as well, because it's quite dim in mm. the cathedral, it's quite dark. Mm. You notice things in this lighting more than you would at any other time of year. And it's just really amazing. Yeah, it's beautiful. Now, the first event that I wanted to talk about was the arrival of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn to Winchester in the summer of 1535. It's, it's a progress very dear to my heart. I've written quite a lot about it. And that's really why I wanted to come here because it's almost the centrepiece of that progress was mm. coming to Winchester because mm. there was a big event going on. So maybe you could tell us, first of all, about that event, why here? So Winchester being as important as it was throughout history in terms of William the Conqueror, in terms of the Anglo-Saxons as well, King Alfred, I think the main thing was that Henry wanted to say, I am part of this line, I am part of this dynasty and I am I am important as well. And with this place being as long as it has, you know, it survived all the turmoil and things that were going on at the time. Um, I think it was his way of saying, you know, look, look, I am part of this as well. So yeah. being able to come to this amazing building and carry on that story, but putting his name on it, I think was quite a powerful move, really. Yeah, so a real a centrepiece, a showpiece, because this was, obviously, there was a huge amount of turmoil around um, his marriage to Anne Boleyn so, and what was unfolding with the church, what had unfolded on the back of the King's Great Matter and the, the, the annulment of the marriage to Catherine. And, and very much that 1535 progress was about honouring many courtiers who'd been supportive of the marriage to Anne. Absolutely. And, of course, we have her three reformist bishops yes. that were going to be consecrated here. So what you're saying is it was an such an important historic site which had those really deep roots in history that it was it was uh, it was worthy of uh, such a grand event yes yeah I, I think so I think it was his way of saying you know this this could this building this cathedral this history has survived time as it were it's 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 an immortal sort of being in itself and yeah. he's sort of taking a little bit yeah. of that cake as it were and yeah. being like I'm gonna have a piece of that yeah absolutely yeah and so who perhaps you could tell us about the men the bishops themselves who were they what do we know about them yeah so um 
It was such an important occasion because for the first time, the appointing of these English bishops um, was a grand ceremony. Um, so this was because Pope Paul, uh, Pope Paul III um, outraged after hearing that Henry had executed John Fisher, mm -hmm. who the Pope had just made a cardinal, excommunicated Henry and England. So this meant that he Henry was able to appoint whoever he wanted and conduct the day without interference from Rome. So he was able to have his party yeah, without yeah. anybody which, saying to him. Which is a real big up yours to Rome, oh, wasn't oh, it? Absolutely. In a, in a hugely. <laughs> absolutely. So I think it's appropriate to ask, who were these three men? So they were Edward Fox, Hugh Latimer and John Hillsley. Um, so they were the ones that, I mean, this was, this was their day. Yeah, basically. but they weren't all being made bishop. Of, they weren't being made bishop of Winchester. No. They were being bishops of different places. So, so Absolutely. who was who, and what was going on there? So we had Edward Fox, who became bishop of Hereford, Hugh Latimer, who became bishop of Worcester, and John Hillsley uh, was bishop of Rochester. Yeah, that's right. And of course, they were all Anne's men. They were all reformish bishops. She so was they helping were... out her pals. Basically, she was saying thank you, wasn't she? And she says, here's a cushy job and lots of power and money because it was then. It was a big deal to be made a bishop of anywhere. What can you tell us about that? What kind of privileges and benefits came from becoming a bishop? Well, lots of bishops that we have throughout history, they're not just ordinary people like we have now. You know, you train to become a member of clergy, you become a priest and you eventually possibly become a bishop. These were people who were connected. So they were either members of the royal family themselves, so directly related to the royal family, or in the case of some of these men, they were already people of privilege, already people of money, people of power, and they just happened to be on the right side at the right time and are rewarded for this. So not necessarily the most Christian of people. <laughs> um, a lot of them didn't actually take their jobs all that seriously. Oh, is that right? um, and so we have what we call um, an absent bishop in some parts of our history where you have a bishop who is a bishop in everything, in, in name, but, but, not, but in not, practice. not in practice. Yes. <laughs> okay. But enjoying all the rewards and the status and the privilege Absolutely. of being in that position. Swathes and swathes of land, huge, huge estates, buildings, people encompassing that. I mean, essentially lords of their own little kingdoms, really. Mm. So maybe back to the ceremony of this consecration. Um, what, when did this happen? What date was it? So it was on September the 11th, 1535. And, and obviously Henry and Anne had come here. They'd wound their way through Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire and, and, and now through into Hampshire. And where, do we know where they stayed? And, and, and maybe some of the details. Do we know anything about actually what happened during that consecration service? Um, we do know a bit about what happened on the day, um, who was there and where it took place. Um, historians believe it's likely that Henry and Anne were at the service itself, but we don't know any further details. Mm. It's likely that the service itself would have taken place at the high altar, which is just behind where we're so, standing So we've, we've kind of come right the way up the nave, haven't we? Um, and we are in the choir at the moment, just in front of the high altar. And yes, I mean, you would imagine, wouldn't you, that the king and queen would have had the privileged place right in front of where all the action was happening. So this is an absolutely gorgeous. Can you tell us about um, this high altar? Because it's 
it, there's a stunning array of carved figures, such intricate carving. How, how old is this? So the great screen, which is the architectural point that you're pointing mm. out. So the screen itself, the actual division of the area that we're standing in called the presbytery, which is right in the middle of the cross shape of the cathedral. Right. So the cathedral's in the shape of a cross. Yeah. Presbytery is right in the middle. And this would have been a really special private place that only the Benedictine monks from the Priory of St. Swithin would have been allowed to come into. So normal people like you and me, especially women, would not have been allowed in here. Yeah, right. And this screen was built to separate the presbytery from the area where St. Swithin's bones were kept. And this amazing stone figures that you see in the great screen are not the original. Um, so they would have been very highly decorated, they would have been very colourful, and we think they would have been very similar in that they would have shown, uh, they would obviously would have shown um, God, Jesus, saints, um, but they were all destroyed during the Reformation. So is the screen itself original, but the figures have been replaced later? Is that what you're saying? The screen itself is medieval, so it's not it's not as old as the Norman part of the cathedral. Right. Whenever you look into the history of this building, you'll notice that things have changed over time. We've had extensions added, we've had new bits added over time. So we think the screen is about 13th, 14th century, um, and, but the figures are in the screen itself are Victorian. Right. Yeah, but it's absolutely stunning, isn't it? Thank you for that. So behind that, we've got the what was the shrine of St. Swithin and, and post-Reformation, of course. Yes. That got destroyed, right? Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. So his bones were brought from the Old Minster. They were put behind this screen in uh, on a special platform and pilgrims would crawl through a hole to be able to walk past the bones of St. Swithin. And then a special shrine was made into the retro choir, which is a later medieval extension onto the back of the cathedral, onto the east end. And that's where we had the shrine, um, but that was destroyed. And we don't know what happened to the bones of St. Swithin. Oh, that's so sad, isn't it? Speaking of bones, though, before we return to our story of Anne and Henry right here by the high altar, one of the lovely things I think you have are these, like, reliquary boxes of bones of the old Anglo-Saxon kings and queens. Is that right? Because I want to point that out mm. in case people come here and they're standing in front of the high altar. If you look up to your left and your right, you'll see these kind of painted boxes. Tell us about them. I think they're fascinating. So we have six mortuary chests in the presbytery in the middle of the cathedral and three on one side of the screen and three on the other side. The boxes themselves are Tudor, so they're not Anglo-Saxon boxes. We know that we at least had another set, an earlier set of boxes but obviously because of their wood, uh. um, they disintegrate over time. So these are Tudor boxes. So very old, but not as old as some of the other things we have in the cathedral. Still Tudor though. Still Tudor though. <laughs> yeah, still really important. <laughs> yeah. um, that the bones inside are much, much older. So we think they are the bones um, of 23 different people, all jumbled up together. And they were people who were originally buried in the Anglo-Saxon Old Minster and New Minster. So... Anglo-Saxon kings and queens of Wessex. Right. Amazing. So, yeah, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And I think that's pretty unique. I've never seen these, and there may be other places, but I've never seen them. This is the place that mm. I, I really, mm -hmm. uh, it stands out for me as having these just unique features. Absolutely. And King Alfred, unfortunately, he, he was buried in the Newminster, but then a special 
Abbey was made for him called Hyde Abbey just outside Winchester and his bones and his family's bones were going to all be buried there um, but then Hyde Abbey was destroyed during the Reformation and so King Alfred's bones are lost, lost. so they are not here in I the mortuary chest. I bet a few chests. people have tried to find him though haven't they? Yeah yeah well they did they think that they did find him at one point but um it was when it was when it used to be sort of a prison area and we don't know what happened. But we do have the bones of really significant kings and queens. So if you've ever heard of King Canute, the Viking who became an Anglo-Saxon king and his Norman wife, Queen Emma, really important in modern royal family yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, really important people in the history of England. Brilliant. Well, why don't we just take a little stroll just right up to the steps of the High Altar where all the action would have happened back in September 1535. So I guess somewhere near here, we have Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn seated, mm -hmm. listening to all that's going on. What would have happened during a consecration ceremony? It's a very good question. I've never seen one, <laughs> but I think, I think it's important to remember that I believe from what I've read and, and our current thinking of Henry and who he was, is that he was a Catholic at heart, really. And the country was still Catholic even though Anne Boleyn had all these ideas. And you know, I have quite a lot of sympathy for Anne. I think actually she was quite forward thinking in all the things that she thought. But to move away from this idea of Catholicism and Rome and all the things that made Christianity what it was and all the sacredness that came from that, I think would have still been very evident at the service. Mm. So that it still would have been a proper service as we know it today. So even though you know, we'd have a change of faces, I still think that there still would have been a lot of things about the service that would have been recognisable to the people there. Right. So I don't think it was a case of he wanted to change things and it changed that day. Right. It, I think yeah. it would have still been a recognisable service to people who had yeah. been to a similar service. Now, when I was researching this particular progress, I don't I'm not sure we know exactly where Anne and Henry stayed, but we figured that they probably stayed in the bishop's palace. It seemed the most logical thing. I imagine after a service like that, there would have been probably some feasting and some celebration, I imagine, back at the palace. Do, but do we have any records here in the cathedral relating to that day or what happened? We don't in the cathedral itself, but um, I think Hampshire Archives, Hampshire Archive Office might have something about what happens here at the cathedral, but we don't have any, really any evidence or any detail or even any objects really from this event. And it's such an important event and it's almost like it didn't happen. That's, I know that is bizarre, mm. isn't it? Because you would have thought that somewhere in some great dusty book, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, there would, would be, be a record of yeah. something. I haven't found anything. I might find something at some point. Oh, keep looking, yeah. won't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, so, um, Unfortunately, no objects for us to see. Um, but if we come on to our second Tudor event, which is a different event, a marriage between, of course, Mary I and her Spanish king, Philip II of Spain. I suppose the first question that, when I was first learning about Tudor history and was, was why here? Mm. Why, didn't, why didn't Philip go to London? What, what, what was going on there? Well, I think one of the main points is that uh, people of England weren't very happy about the marriage. Um, so they were worried that 
England would become subject to Spain. Um, and so there was a lot of rioting in London. So I think the idea was that they were just going to quickly ship him up from Southampton, get him into we Winchester and have the wedding, essentially. Right. Yeah. I think it's how just it works. Slip it under the yeah, carpet. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Not to say that it wasn't a grand occasion, of because course. it absolutely was. But I think Winchester was a little bit more amenable and a little bit smaller than London. And That's Yeah, okay. So... Remind me, what was the date of the wedding? When did all this festivity happen? So it was the 25th of July, 1554. Lovely summer, hopefully. Lovely summer day, hope. So Philip obviously is arriving from Spain, so he'll be coming up from the south coast, meeting Mary, who's coming down from London. What do we know about the time in Winchester before the wedding took place? So yes, absolutely. He travelled up from the port of Southampton, and when he got to Winchester itself, he went straight to the cathedral, mm -hmm. like a good boy, <laughs> to pray, and great songs of thanksgiving were sung by the choir. I mean, literally where we're standing. Literally where we're standing. He must have been here. Yeah. He must have knelt right in front of the yeah, high altar. Absolutely. That's cool. I've just had that, sh that shiver feeling up and down my spine. Wow, <laughs> carry on. Um, but it was two days before the wedding on the 23rd of July that they met. So Mary and Philip actually met for the first time at Wolvesey Castle um, and that evening and they had a feast together. Well, you would do. Well, you, you would, yeah. <laughs> Got to impress your new wife, I suppose. <laughs> um, so they were lodged in two different places. So Mary stayed at Wolvesey Castle and Philip stayed at the deanery here within the grounds of the cathedral. And from where you're talking, I, I'm imagining the deanery actually still exists. Yes, it does. Yeah, absolutely. It's an amazing building with three arches out the front of it, but it's still a private residence. It's still where our dean currently lives. It's always been a deanery. Well, that's great. Has it been changed in the interior or is the room layout? out pretty much as it was, do you know? Um, so Priors Hall, which makes up one half of the building, is it was a, a medieval hall and it still is when you go up to the, the second floor, but it would have been one open space oh. with the beams on the top, but it was altered during um, a visit by King Charles and so it looks very... As in King Charles the first, second? I think it's second. second. Don't quote me on that. Not I can't the quite current remember. King Charles. Not the, no, not the current. Of course, yeah, not the current one. Um, but yes, it, it does. It doesn't look medieval in there at all. The moment got lots of yeah. plaster work, and, and right. yes, and two floors were made. And in the deanery itself, it looks like a home because it's, it's somebody's been living there for a long time. That's great. Yeah. Okay, so let's forward to the wedding day. What do we know about that day? Do you have any records? Again, we, we were talking about records before that you don't have anything about the service of consecration of the reformist bishops. Is that the same for the wedding of Mary and Philip? So we know a little bit more about Mary's wedding. We know that a temporary wooden walkway and dais was built all along the length of the nave. So kind of like a catwalk. Yeah. With a red carpet running all the way along so everybody could see her as she walked down the nave for her wedding. Um, and the cathedral itself was decorated, they say, with cloths of gold. So when you go into the nave, you can see there are little metal hooks all the way along the columns. And that's where they think we had all these draperies hanging down. Um, we also know that on the temporary dais, the Queen's chair was on the right-hand side and Philip's was on the left. Mm -hmm. And that was really significant because it meant that Mary was walking on Philip's right because she was sovereign. Mm -hmm. So traditionally, it would have been the other way around. So it was showing that even though she was marrying Philip, 
she was the queen, which was yeah. really, really important. Um, so Bishop Gardiner officiated the wedding, our Bishop of the Cathedral. Wow, yeah. right. And he's buried here, isn't he? He is, yes. He has a and Chantry Chapel. Well, maybe in a moment we could go around and have a look at that, that tomb. That would be great. So once again, I'm as you're talking, I'm seeing the walkway spanning right the way down from the west doors, coming right at me to here in front of the high altar where it all happened. Now, I know before when we were talking about arranging this you were talking about Mary's wedding dress because we know something about that don't we we absolutely do we know what they both wore so Philip wore an embroidered suit of cloth of gold which always sounds nice isn't it cloth of gold shimmering yeah and Mary wore a gown of rich tissue with a border and wide sleeves embroidered upon purple satin set with pearls of our store lined with purple tefta lovely gorgeous and I've seen a replica of that dress somewhere. Yes, it's mine. Is it yours? Yeah. So tell me, how did you get it? I mean, was that just a passion project of yours? Pretty much, pretty much. So um, the marriage of Mary and Philip here isn't really one that we talk about all that much. And I was never really quite sure why, because it's, it's such an amazing story, you know, and it's one of our claims to fame that this great amazing ceremony happened here Um, and so myself and now Dr Joanna um, created a series last year um, for the cathedral so it's on our YouTube channel all about the wedding here at the cathedral and for that I asked my friend Fiona Green to make me an amazing replica costume replica dress based on portraits of Mary from the wedding. Mm. So um Yes, because there are portraits of Philip and Mary together. Is mm-hmm. one of them a wedding portrait yes, then? Yes, yeah. So oh, one of them, you can see the purple dress. Ah, well, we'll try and dig that out and perhaps we can put that on the show notes page so people can see that. And do you have a photograph of the, the dress yes, that we might yeah, be able absolutely. to also share with people yeah. who are listening? Because that would be lovely. Now, the big question is, Aisha, did you wear it? I did wear it, yes. And <laughs> absolutely, I did. <laughs> absolutely. At any opportunity given, yes, I was wearing it, yes. Yeah, I still have it. It's mine. I've paid for it. So, yeah, oh, it's just wow. sort of sitting there in the cupboard whenever I feel like dressing up as Mary. Oh, you know? <laughs> that seems a shame. Yeah. You need to, need to find some other places to get out and about Absolutely. and uh, wear that dress. That's wonderful. Is there anything else we need to know about that? the day itself? You said that Gardner officiated, and we will go and talk about Gardner in a moment, mm-hmm. but anything else we need to know about the day? So after the wedding took place in the nave, so that's in the main sort of corridor of the cathedral, they then would have come into the presbytery of the cathedral, where we're standing now, right in the middle, which would have been... Um, sectioned off from everybody else the nave was a public space Mm -hmm. but the presbytery isn't and they would have knelt up here at the high altar and they would have had a service of mass so they still would have had the catholic mass service said mary was catholic philip was catholic so even after everything that king henry VIII did her her dad she wanted a catholic mass here for Mm. her wedding Mm. So they got married in the public space in yes. May, but then came into the private space Absolutely. to him. Ah, that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. So that's, for, that's really important for people who are visiting, because I think it, it could be easy to think that they got married here in front of the high altar, but actually it was in a different space. So yeah. thank you very much for pointing that out. You have been listening to the first part of this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. The remainder of this episode is only available to members of my membership site, The Ultimate Guide to Exploring Tudor England. To join the waitlist to become a member of The Ultimate Guide, 
click on the link in the description associated with this podcast. You will be added to the waiting list and I will email you just as soon as the doors to the membership next reopen. I'll see you there. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. If you've loved the show, please take a moment to subscribe, like and rate this podcast so that we can spread the Tudor love. Until next time, my friends, all that remains for me to say is happy time travelling. Happy time travelling.